Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark begins his gospel with a declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And everything he shares, every event, every lesson, every sermon points us to that central truth that Jesus was very much indeed the Son of God. In the first three chapters, Mark shares a variety of miracles. Jesus uh, performs physical healings. Jesus performs demonic exorcisms. All of this to show that as the Son of God, He has power over physical sickness. He has power over demonic spirits. But now when we come to this passage in Mark 4, there is somewhat of a shift, not in Mark's purpose, but in the style of miracle that he records. Because now in this passage, he is going to show us that Jesus, the Son of God, is sovereign over nature by sharing a story that no doubt Peter had shared with Mark and given a bird's eye account of what happened. And it, of course, is when Jesus speaks to the wind, rebukes a storm, and he calms the sea. Let's read in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Scripture says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is a passage that is very familiar with Bible readers. It is one of those passages that we have heard about We've read about and we have heard preached about on numerous occasions and therein lies the danger. <laughs> the danger is that when we are very familiar with a passage of Scripture that we can skim over it, that we can read through it, and that we can miss the overall purpose of why it is in the gospel account. Some people, when they read this passage, they focus exclusively on the storm, its winds, its waves, its ferocity. Other people read this passage and they focus on the disciples, their fear, their doubt, their accusation. Yet, if we keep in mind the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark, we know that the purpose of this passage, the purpose of this event being included in Mark's gospel account 
is to show us and to prove to us that Jesus is indeed the sovereign Son of Almighty God. But like everything else in Scripture, Mark does not just include this event just to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. But he includes this event to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, to build our faith in Jesus, and to instill trust in Jesus. You see, the truth drives us to trust. That's what Mark's goal is. It is to show us who Jesus is in order that we might put our faith and our trust in Him. You see this work its way through this passage. When Jesus calms the storm, when Jesus silences the sea, the disciples are in awe. They are fearful. They are afraid. And Jesus responds to them with two questions in verse 40, which I think is the key to interpreting this this passage, its intent and its meaning. Because he says to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? The adverb still in this passage is key. Because what Jesus is saying, even now, even after you have seen me calm the storm, Even after you have seen the winds obey my voice, even at this moment, as Jesus stands on the ship in the midst of a sea that two minutes earlier was causing them to reel and rock like a drunk man out of control, he asked them, do you still not believe me? You see, the purpose of this passage is to show us Jesus and to instill trust in Jesus. So what I want to do, I want us to look at this text and I want to see what it teaches us about Jesus and then I want us to see how that should drive us to truth and to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to look at this passage under three headings. First, I want us to see that Jesus tests our faith. Jesus tests our faith. Um, Have you ever heard of a stress test? A stress test is defined as a form of deliberately intense and thorough testing used to determine the stability of a given system or entity. After the stock market collapse of 2008, the government passed a series of tests that financial institutions have to pass in order to retain their, uh, their, uh, their uh, insurance. And so they put them under some hypothetical situations, some stresses to see whether or not the system is strong enough to withstand certain blows, uh, certain variables. You may be here this morning and you've had a heart stress test before. A doctor will take you, put you on a treadmill, and they will put stress on your heart. And if you fail a heart stress test, it could indicate that you've got artery uh, disease, that you've got heart problem, and that you need further tests, maybe even open heart surgery. But it is the stress that is put on the system that reveals the weaknesses in the system. Well, what Jesus does in this passage with his disciples is he performs the strangest type of stress test. It is a faith stress test. He is going to test their faith to see 
whether or not it is strong or whether or not it is weak. And how he does this is he puts them in the midst of the greatest storm that they have ever been in in their entire life. So let's look at this storm for just a moment. Consider, if you will, the divine origin of this storm. Storms come from one person, God. Jot down Psalm 107 verse 25. Scripture says, For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which left up the waves and the sea. Who commanded? God commanded. When he commanded, what happened? The storm rose. Now look what happens in our text. It's in verse 35 that Jesus says to the disciples, Let us go across to the other side. He's going over into the Gentile area now. And he tells them, let's get in a boat and let's go. Jesus was already sitting in a boat because he had been teaching there all day. And don't you think for just a moment that the Lord, who in verse 35 says, let's go across to the other side, knows that in verse 37... They are going to run smack dab into the greatest storm that they have ever faced in their life. Listen to me. The same is true for us today. No surprises for Jesus. No storm catches him off guard. And if you are here today and you find yourself in the midst of a surprising storm, you find yourself in the midst of trouble and you find yourself in the midst of a crisis that seems to have arisen out of nowhere, Know this, that it came to you as a part of the sovereign will of Almighty God. No storm comes into your life without it first passes through the perfect will of God. David said in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. But you know where else the shepherd leads the sheep in the 23rd Psalm? Into the valley of the shadow of death. How do I know he leads them there? Because David said, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The reason the shepherd's with us in the valley of the shadow of death is because he's the one who leads us there. So this storm has a divine origin. It was in the will of God. And then this storm came with a sudden surprise. Notice, they're in the ship. They're sailing along. Verse 37 says, And a great windstorm arose, literally, out of nowhere. And he says, The waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, now think of this. It's smooth sailing. Then out of nowhere, a storm like they had never seen before arises. The winds are blowing. The waves are crashing. The water is coming in. The boat is filling. And they don't know if they're going to make it or not. You know, isn't that the way life sometimes comes at us? It throws surprises our way that's sudden, that shocks us. Your life can be flipped upside down with one phone call, one text. You're not expecting it. You're going through a regular day and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a car crash, a diagnosis, something else that throws your life upside down and it hits suddenly, quickly, and powerfully. But you know what? 
How did the disciples respond to this? They panicked. They were afraid. They thought they were going to die. Now get this. What were most of the disciples? What occupation were they? Fishermen. Do you think this was the first storm they'd ever encountered on the sea? No. They'd encountered multiple storms on the sea. But this was unlike anything they had ever seen. They were not accustomed to a storm like this. And they panicked. You know, there's something fearful when someone who's seasoned in something panics. Um, we were on vacation with, with Brian and Jamie. It was several years ago. Lily wasn't even born yet. And we were eating, and we were eating squid, fried squid. And uh, Kennedy was eating it, and we're sitting there eating, and it, it was almost like the dog on uh, National Lampoon's vacation. You heard a coughing noise down at the end of the, end of the, uh, of the table. <laughs> And, and I'm sitting there. I'm not even looking up. I'm, I'm eating, and, and Shelly Shelley says, she, she's choking. And I looked, and Kennedy was choked. And everybody at the table was jumping up like, is she okay, okay? And here we are at the table with an ENT, and he doesn't even look up. He looks down, and he says, she's not blue. She's got air. And he just keeps eating. Well, she keeps on. <clears throat> and then finally, he puts down his fork and gets up to go to her. She, she hacks it up, and she was fine after that. Uh, you know, we look at it now. Shelly still swears she was two seconds away from dying, and it was Brian's fault uh, if she would have died. But, but what? why didn't he panic? Well, one, he'd seen that before. Two, he had more knowledge of the situation than we had. Could have been three, he was enjoying his meal. Uh, but, but why? What would have happened if he had reacted like we had reacted? In panic. Shelly probably would have passed out, and I don't know what in the world I would have done. Well, why was he calm? Again, he had been there before. He had seen that. I promise you that if this had just been a regular storm, the disciples would have been fine. They had seen it before. They had worked through it before. They knew how to get through a storm. This wasn't a storm. This was the perfect storm that had hit them, and they were frantic and scared. And in the midst of this storm, they ask a critical question. They're looking around. They're trying to survive. And somebody's missing. You know who's missing? Jesus. Where in the world is he? There's a search for Jesus. And all of a sudden, somebody comes up from the stern and says, Hey, I found him. What you doing? Praying? No. He's asleep. What? He's asleep on a cushion. <laughs> Let's go ask him something. And they go to him and watch this question in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Listen, they've already given up hope. They said, we're dying. We're never seeing home again. And don't you care about where we are at? Do you know there is something about storm, a storm in life. There's something about the struggles that we go through in life that don't they sometimes cause us to ask the very same question that the disciples ask? You see, here's the thing. Jesus has already proven his love to these disciples, has he not? Think about what happened earlier in chapter 4. Jesus teaches the crowd in parables. What does he do with his disciples? He brings them over privately. And he does for them what he doesn't do for the crowd. He explains the parables to them, the truths of the kingdom of God. 
He's given them insider information. He's loved them with a particular redeeming love. But now when the storm hits, they've forgotten about his past exhibition of love. And now they're only focused on the present. It appears as if he's indifferent. It appears that he doesn't care. It appears that Jesus does not love them. They want to say to him the same thing the psalmist said in Psalm 44. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Will you cast us off forever? If you loved us, you would be awake with us. Jason Meyer says that suffering disrupts our disposition of trust. Suffering has a way of disrupting our disposition of trust. We know God cares. We know God loves us. And we know He's already proven His love for us 2,000 years ago at the cross. And nothing will change that. God cannot love you any more than what He loved you 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross in His own body God, it is impossible for God to love you any more than what He loved you with at that moment. But you let struggling hit. And you know what our flesh is tempted to do? Our flesh is tempted to ask the same thing of the Lord. Don't you care? Lord, you're silent. Don't you care that the biopsy revealed cancer? Lord, don't you care that I'm struggling physically and living in constant pain? Lord, don't you care my child has a disability? Don't you care that my parents look at me and they don't even remember my name or know who I am? Don't you care that my spouse and I would be great parents but we can't conceive a child? Don't you care? That my child died? Lord, don't you care that I'm on the verge of bankruptcy and I don't see any way out? Lord, don't you care that I have reached the end of my rope? I look for you and all I get is silence. Nothing. No answer. No, it's like you're asleep. Wake up, oh Lord. Don't you care? That's what the disciples ask. And you know what they do with their stress test? They fail it with flying colors. And the reason they fail it with flying colors is because they've got their eye on the storm rather than their eye on the Savior. So here are the disciples. Their faith is being tested and they fail it with flying colors. But secondly, I want you to see in this text how Jesus displays true faith. Jesus displays true faith. One of the greatest, most unusual symbols of faith in all the Bible is found in verse 38. And it's the cushion. I'm telling you, sometimes we think of faith, we think of We think of a fiery furnace. We think of a lion's den. We think of all of that. Well, I'm adding the cushion to that list of great symbols of faith. You don't think of it, but it is, and and I'll prove it to you. Jesus being asleep in the stern of the ship shows us two glorious truths about Jesus. The first truth it shows us is that he was fully man. 
All right, he was fully man. Let's just recount what this text says. Verse 35 says, on that day when evening had come. Now, what day? Well, that references us back to the beginning of chapter 4, where Jesus is surrounded by a great crowd, and the crowd is so great, Jesus gets into a boat to teach them. So Jesus now spends all day teaching and preaching to the multitude, drawing his disciples aside at times privately and giving them an explanation and then preaching and teaching to the group again. And he is exhausted. Listen, there is something about preaching and teaching. It takes a lot out of you. Sometimes I barely make it to the restaurant after church on Sunday uh, to get something to eat. It, It does. It just zaps the strength out of you. But listen, you know what the Bible says about God? He who keeps Israel would neither what? Slumber or sleep. Sleeping is what humans do. Sleeping is what people do. God doesn't sleep. People sleep. And yet in this boat, we have God sleeping because God 2,000 years ago became a human being. He became a man. He wrapped himself in flesh and blood like you and me. And he got weary. He got tired, he got hungry, he got thirsty. He was made in all manners, like us, but without sin. And so with Jesus being a man, we see his humanity on display because he is asleep in the stern of the ship on a cushion. And as a man, he fully trusted God. Now, While Jesus slept because he was a man, I would argue that the source of his sleep was not mere exhaustion. He did not sleep because he was just so exhausted that that, uh, he slept through a hurricane, literally. That's not the source of his sleep. The source of his sleep was faith in his Father. Now, hold spot. Go back to the third psalm. Psalm 3, because I want to show you something. In Scripture, oftentimes, sleep and faith go together. Now, some of you are going to leave here thinking, hey, I need to get more faith tonight (laughs) so so I can sleep a little bit better. But but it does, and I'll show you how. Um, All right, the third Psalm, understand the context. What's going on is David is on the run from his son Absalom who has attempted to steal the kingdom away from him. So David is the king on the run. And in the first two verses, David has his eye on his enemy. Look what he says. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So David says, here are my opponents. They're chasing me. They're running after me. They're coming to get me. But in verse 3 and 4, David turns his eyes on God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me and my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Salah. What he says is this. I'm no longer focusing on my enemies. I'm focusing on you, who you are. They're chasing me, but you are a shield. You are the lifter of my head. They want to cut my head off. You are the lifter of my head. So I am looking to you. Now, because David looks to him, 
What does he do while his enemies are pursuing him? Verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again. Why? For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Do you see what happens here? David says, they may be pursuing me, they may be after me, but the Lord will sustain me, the Lord will watch over me, and so while He protects me, I'm going to do something that seems odd, but expresses my faith, I'm going to sleep. David realized, he knew that the one who was for him was far greater than all of those who were against him. Now think of this. What is the natural response To worry. Is it not sleeplessness? Can't go to sleep. You got too much on your mind. But Jesus spoke of both the uselessness and the sinfulness of worry on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said it's useless in Matthew 6, 27. And which of you being anxious can add a single heir to his span of life? Let me ask you something. Has worrying about anything ever solved anything? Not one iota. Never solved one thing. Furthermore, Jesus says worry's faithless. It it is an expression of doubt and unbelief. Jesus says do not be anxious. That's a command. Don't worry. If you worry and you're anxious, then you're disobeying that command. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient. For the day is its own trouble. You see, long hours of watching the clock tick away minute by minute, worrying about what's coming up, a test, a surgery, a job interview, a bill coming due. It might seem to flow from love and concern. But I promise you this, the ultimate source of this worry is doubt and unbelief. And there is something about worry that makes us feel more spiritual and more caring when we worry to the point that it strips us of rest and takes away our sleep. Do you realize that one of the most spiritual things you could ever do is lay down and get a night's sleep? Lay down and go to sleep. Now, me, I sleep about four or five hours a night. My problem is to sleep. My problem is I just wake up at three in the morning and I'm ready to go. I come out of bed raring and ready. But, but you can ask Shelly. I have no trouble going to sleep. She can be in the middle of a sentence, not even the middle of a story and next thing I know I'm waking up it's morning time. And uh, she'll say next one, well you did it again. And uh, you know, I was like, well, you, you shouldn't let me lay down. I mean it's just, it's just you know the way it is. Uh, you know. but, but, but it is one of the most spiritual things you could do to express your faith in God. Just go to sleep. You know what you're saying when you sleep? You're saying, God, you've got this. I don't know how things will turn out. And I don't need to know how things will turn out because I have you and you are enough. You are greater than the results. You're greater than my struggle. And so while you keep everything going in its perfect form and while you are in complete control, working all things out for your glory, I'm going to do what only I can do to help the situation. I'm going to go to sleep. 
That is exactly what Jesus is doing here in the boat. He is expressing perfect faith in the Father. He believes and trusts the Father. As a matter of fact, there's a clue in Mark 4 as to how they were going to be safe. You know what Jesus says? Let us go across to the other side. His intent and purpose is to get to the other side. And do you know what? He has never failed to reach the other side yet. Where he sets out, that's where he arrives. And the disciples thought that he was going to be shortchanged. His will was going to be, um, was going to be circumvented. But it would not be. And so Jesus rests and trusts as the perfect David, as the perfect king, trusting in God. And so Jesus displays true faith. We have the disciples' failure. We have Jesus modeling true faith to us. But this passage is not just about the poor disciples failing in their faith and Jesus showing us how to have great faith. But this passage points us to something far greater. Because this passage shows us that Jesus deserves our faith. He deserves our faith. Now, the main purpose of this event, again, is to show us who Jesus truly is. And when they come to Jesus and say, don't you care that we perish? Verse 39 says, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Now what I want to do, I want to walk us through a syllogism. Just some logical steps. And then I want us to come to a conclusion at the end. And it all surrounds Jesus calming this storm. What we find first is that Jesus calmed the storm. That's undisputed. You can't dispute that. The Bible says, He awoke, He rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace be still. Mark in his style is short. He's to the point, And he's very simple. So once they wake Jesus up, He walks out, He speaks to the wind, speaks to the sea, and immediately... It calms. Now, the disciples' reaction, however, is interesting in verse 41. They were filled with great fear. I would think it would say joy. I mean, if I thought I was getting ready to die and Jesus calmed the storm, I'd be happy. But now, they're more afraid of him in a sense than they were even the storm because they realize something. That although Jesus calmed the storm, only God calms storms. They knew what the Old Testament said. Psalm 89.9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 65.7 says that God stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. Only one person in the universe can calm a storm. That's God. As a matter of fact, hold your place here in Mark 4 and turn back to the 107th Psalm. Because in the 107th Psalm, I'm quite confident we find truths to which the disciples' minds probably wandered to. Because there is a wonderful parallel between the 107th Psalm and Mark 4. In verse 23 through 27 of the 107th Psalm, 
we find that God alone causes storms. Look what he says. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. So the sailors in Psalm 107 really act much like the disciples did in Mark 4. I mean, they're at their wit's end. They're scared to death. The waves and the sea is crashing against them. They're reeling and rocking like drunk men. And they are, they don't know where to turn. They are frightened. But in verse 28 and 29, look what they do. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distresses. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Who made the storm be still? God did. The same one who spoke and roused the sea is the same one who spoke and calmed the sea. The disciples know this, that only God can calm the sea. What was the response in Psalm 107, verse 30? Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. He said, God proved his love to the sailors. He saved them. He delivered them. They called out to God and he rescued them. When the disciples go in and wake up Jesus, I'm almost certain that they didn't think Jesus would do what he did. Speak to the wind and the sea and calm the storm. You know what I think they thought he would do? I think they thought he would pray to the Father. And then God would calm the storm. Otherwise, they would have reacted differently. They they did not react in Mark 4 like the sailors did in Psalm 107. They were glad. They thanked God. The disciples respond by being filled with great fear. And they ask a second question. The most important question that will ever be asked and answered. As Jesus stands on a ship in the midst of a calm sea with the skies blue and the wind, a small breeze to to cool your brow, they ask the question, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? They look at Jesus and they ask, Who then is this? Can I tell you who this is? This is the creator of heaven and earth. This is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. This is Abraham's seed. And this is Judah's line. Who then is this? This is the deliverer out of Egypt. The prophet like Moses the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the captain of the Lord's army, the kinsman redeemer, and the righteous reigning king. Who then is this, they ask? This is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This is the child who was born, and the son who is given, and the one 
who bears the weight of the government upon his shoulders. Who is this? This is the one whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is the lily of the valley. Who then is this? This is the one David said, The Lord is my shepherd. He is my refuge and strength, the very present help in the time of trouble. This is the one that Saul of Tarsus, when he met him for the first time, called him Lord. Thomas, when he saw him in the upper room, called him my Lord and my God. John called him the Word who was made flesh. And he bore witness of himself, saying that I am the descendant of David and the bright and morning star. Who then is this? Gabriel said, His name shall be called Jesus, for He shall save His people from His sin. The prophet said, You shall call His name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Who is this on the ship that day? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown Him Lord of all. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is who this is. And when they are confronted, they fear because they realize Jesus calmed the storm. Only God calms storms. Therefore, Jesus is God. He's not a miracle worker only. He's not just a rabbi. He was not just a teacher. He was not just a good man. He's God in human flesh. That is why He says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I've done what only God can do. And why is it you don't believe? Here it is. The disciples face to face with deity. With Jesus, the one who has power over the land and the sea and sickness and all things else. And Jesus is telling them... Trust me. Trust me. And if Jesus calmed the storm, and only God can calm storms, and if therefore God is Jesus, then there's a truth all of us can get from this, and that is this. You can trust Him. You can trust Him. You know why you can trust Him? Because He's God. He's not Buddha. He's not Confucius. He's not Muhammad. He is not... Just some ordinary man. He is God wrapped in human flesh. Here's the glorious part. Because He is God. He can do what only God can do. And the glory of this passage is that because He is so great, He is able to save great sinners who have weak faith. What if the disciples 
eternal life was based upon the fervency of their faith, the strength of their faith. Well, you might as well throw them overboard and let them drown. I mean, they got weak faith. Weak faith. The same thing you have and the same thing I have. Do you know why we are going to heaven today? Not because of the strength of our faith, but because of the object of our faith. Weak faith in the right object is much greater than strong faith in the wrong object. There are moments when my faith is weak and my faith falters and my faith fails. But the reason I stand before you today saved by the grace of Almighty God, it is not because my faith is strong, my faith is great, my faith is wonderful, but it's because my Savior is great. My Savior is strong. My Savior is wonderful. And He is so great that He saves great sinners who have weak faith if they have faith in Him. Let me ask you this. Those of you who may be here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and you have not put faith, your faith in Him and you are still in your unbelief, I will ask you the same thing that Jesus asked those disciples. Have you still no faith? How do you not believe? How do you not have faith? Because listen to me. This passage, as glorious and as wonderful as it is, Jesus is going to do something far greater than this. If you think that speaking to the wind and calming the sea is a grand glorious miracle that declares that He is the Son of God, it does. But if you think that's the grandest thing Jesus will ever do to prove who He is, you need to keep reading Because what you're going to find is He's going to do something that's far more glorious, far more grand than calming the sea. He's going to go to a cross. And on that cross, He is going to be humiliated, shamed. He is going to be mocked and beaten. And on that cross, He is going to become the sins of all of those who will ever believe in Him. He will bear their sins in His body on the tree. And this man who speaks to the wind and the sea is going to die. But something's going to happen three days later. Three days later, that same body that was dead on the cross is going to be brought back to life by the power of the Spirit of God. And that same man who was carried into the tomb and laid on that slab is going to stand up and walk out of the tomb under his own power, being raised from the dead, never to die again. And on that glorious day, the Father will say to His Son, Today I have begotten Thee. You are My Son. And He will say to the entire world that this is My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Sit at My right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And today, if you will believe that gospel message, if you will believe that miracle of all miracles, that this man... He's also the one who died and who was buried and who was raised again. 
you will place faith in him, I'll tell you what he'll do. He'll calm the raging storm of your soul caused by sin, by rebellion, by disobedience. The same one who said, peace be still to that sea that day is the same one who says, peace be still to our troubled souls. And when he says, peace be still to a heart, guilt is gone. Shame is gone. Worry is gone. And all you know is a peace of God that passes all understanding. So my question to you today is this. Why are you still in unbelief? Will you believe in him today? Will you trust him today? He deserves it. Let's pray. Father, as I come to you today in Jesus' name, I thank you for sending your son to this earth. I thank you that he came to become a human just like us with the exception of sin. And that on the cross he bore our sins in his body on the tree and that he died and that he was buried and that he was raised again the third day. And Father, I thank you for the promise that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I pray today, Father, for faith. I pray, Father, for the quickening power of the Holy Spirit to touch hearts and to draw sinners to yourself. Father, I pray that there will be people here today who will come. Lord, I stand at times in amazement how many sermons they've heard, how many songs they've heard, how many church services they've attended. And I want to say, why do you still not believe? But Father, I pray today at this moment and in this time that you would do a work in their heart to where they will go from still not believing to finally believing finally trusting saying yes I believe in Jesus Christ Father would you save people today and silence the storms that sin has raging in their spirits replace guilt and shame with peace and acceptance Lord we'll give you praise and glory for it for we ask it in Jesus name and for his sake Amen Amen let's stand this morning If you're here today and you don't know Christ and the storm of sin is raging in your heart and your soul, it needs calm. I encourage you to come. Trust Christ. Believe in Him this morning. If you're here and you are saved and you just need prayer or you just need to come, talk to the Lord. You're in the midst of struggles and problems and feel free to come as well today. Move as God bids and speaks to your heart. Feel free today. Come to the table. Let's sing. Hear the voice of love is calling. There's a chair that waits for you. Feel free to come. And a friend who understands everything you go going through. Feel free to come. But you keep standing at a distance. 
Savior 